it is such a joy to be here with you all today. Uh, actually, the last time that I was visiting Texas, I was over in Dallas. I know some people here have mixed feelings about Dallas, um, but I was uh, speaking at a women's event at the Dallas Country Club, and um, it was the sort of occasion where the women were so immaculate, immaculately dressed, and they had their hair so fantastically styled, and um, that literally every time you took a breath, you would just start choking on hairspray. And um, I could see by the kind of gleam in their eyes and the way their fingers were twitching that they were all just absolutely dying to fix my disappointingly flat hair. And um, I, I was like, they were thinking, oh, poor thing. You know, just, it's not her fault. She just doesn't know any better. She's European, bless her heart. Um, so it is so good to be here with you this morning. I can breathe a little easier here today. There's a little less hairspray in the air. Uh, but one thing, you know, I really love about the United States, and actually particularly Texas, is that whether we're talking about faith or fashion or business or barbecue, uh, people just hold really strong convictions in this country. Uh, like my cousin-in-law, Stephanie, who's a lawyer in New Jersey, but who not long after meeting me, meeting me told me outright that she could never become a Christian because the Bible is just too sexist. I know Stephanie is certainly not the only one who feels that way. A while back, one of the most uh, popular radio stations in the United Kingdom, BBC Radio 4, they ran a series called The Misogynist Book Club, in which every week they discussed a different book which was considered to have been particularly oppressive towards women. And uh, coming in at number two, they'd placed Fifty Shades of Grey, perhaps not a surprise to anybody. Uh, but guess which book beat out Fifty Shades of Grey to take the number one spot for the most oppressive book in history towards women? The Bible. Yes, the Bible. And perhaps there are some of you here today, male and female, who are just really struggling with that very same perception. It's certainly a question that I wrestled with for years growing up in the church and just wondering, what is my place in all of this, God? What did you make me for? Why am I here and I can remember reading the novel, The Great Gatsby, when I was a teenager, and the words of Daisy Buchanan really just lodged in my mind. And she has this to say about her daughter. She says, I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. And as I read, I, I remember questioning whether that was all the Bible had to say to me as well, whether my purpose was just to be ornamental and decorative to be seen, but certainly not heard. And right this moment, we're in a culture that is an uproar over this very sentiment with so many women feeling not only unheard, but unseen. And my question today is this, in a culture where our headlines are so often flooded with bad news, what kind of news does the Bible have to offer? This concern has never felt more pressing to me than when I was giving a talk on UC Berkeley's campus a couple of years ago, and it just so happened that the day I was speaking was International Women's Day, and as you can imagine, at UC Berkeley, this day is kind of a big deal. There was lots of protesting, lots of banners and marching and slogans and signs, and just a real feeling of anger, actually, on the campus. But right in the middle of all the craziness, there was a woman who was standing on the busiest thoroughfare of campus, and, and she was just wearing fishnet tights and a short denim skirt, and she was topless with, with just a paper bag over her head, and the eyes cut out. And you could tell people didn't really know what to make of this public spectacle. Some people immediately laughed, I guess out of shock. Other people just turned their eyes away and hurried on by. But then if you got close enough, if you, if you walked towards her, then you could see written across the top of the paper bag were these words, 
all five of my rapists are getting away with it. And then he looked into her eyes, and they were just totally haunted. For the sake of confidentiality, I'm going to call her Rachel. But you know, as I stood there looking at Rachel, I just found myself asking the question, what would Jesus Christ have to say to her? What would he have to say to Rachel? And as I reflected on that question, I realized that actually I had never felt more grateful than I did in that moment to believe that the God of the Bible is real. And I felt that way for three reasons that I'm going to explain to you this morning. Three reasons why I believe that contrary to all the rumors that you might hear, the Bible is not only good news today, but has always been good news for women. And the first reason is this. Only God can ground the intrinsic worth of every human person. In fact, if you take God out of the picture from a purely naturalistic perspective, it's actually hard to justify why what happened to Rachel specifically, someone that you don't even know, is such a big deal. After all, if our lives are just cosmic evolutionary accidents, if we're nothing more than a collocation of atoms, then on what basis do we assign value or significance to another person, let alone equal value? We talk about human rights, but what are we grounding them on? If we're just dancing to our DNA and the name of the game is survival of the fittest, then why shouldn't we say that one life is of greater value than another, or that might makes right, or that it's every man for himself? In the words of the poet Steve Turner, who follows this naturalistic outlook through to its logical conclusion in his harrowing poem, my love, she said that when all's considered, we're only machines. I chained her to my bedroom wall for future use. And she cried. You know, the Bible, it, it tells us such a different kind of story, and it does so right from the very first page, because before we're told anything else about who we are as human beings, we are told this, that God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You know, according to Christianity, we are not random, you are intentioned, and you are no accident, you are made. And not just made by God, but made like God. And that applies to both male and female. And I know from our 21st century perspective, perhaps that may not strike you as all that remarkable, but compare this declaration to other ancient beliefs, such as these words from the 5th century BC Greek philosopher Plato, who said this, it is only males who are created directly by the gods and are given souls. Those who live rightly return to the stars, but those who are cowards may with reason be supposed to have changed into the nature of women in the second generation. So according to Plato, men alone are created directly by the gods, and the punishment for cowardly men is that you will be reborn as a woman. So gentlemen in the room, you have been warned. You know, radical contrast to this, the Bible asserts that not only are women like men fully human, but they too are made in the very likeness of God, and therefore they hold equal value before him. And how sad I find it that those who, who just claim to be too feminist for Christianity, they don't see that the equality that they're actually longing for is ultimately grounded in the very God that they're so often rejecting. There is simply no other statement of gender equality like this in the ancient world, nor do I believe today. And this world-shaping impact that this statement has had upon human history, it actually cannot be overstated. For example, uh, in response to the profound implications of this declaration, the 
early church actually ended the Greco-Roman practice of exposure, the killing of newborn infants within eight days of birth if the family felt like they were unable to support them. And that was a practice that not only devalued human life in general, but which disproportionately affected female children as it was the females who were considered the greatest strain upon family resources. And what good for the world might it do today if we could recognize the profound implications again of Genesis 1, particularly in light of the ongoing gender side, which accounts for around 200 million girls who the UN have estimated are missing in the world today due to sex-selective abortion. This declaration also makes sense of why it is that we so instinctively grieve what happened to Rachel at Berkeley because what took place was a violation of the most sacred thing in the world, a human person. And yet at the same time, if Christianity's teaching about human worth is true, then it also means that no matter what happens, nothing can strip her of her dignity or make her less than. Her worth is never going to be defined either by anything that she has done or anything that has been done to her, but simply because she is made in the image of God and she is fiercely loved by him. It is God alone who grounds our value. And secondly, it is God alone who guarantees justice. What I found fascinating about the Berkeley students I met was that while they identified as moral relativists, they were also totally committed to fighting social injustice. And so the question I had for them was, how do you reconcile these two competing ideologies? Because if if you're saying there's no such thing as right and wrong, then why do you care so much about setting to right the world's wrongs? We live in a culture that is increasingly rejecting the moral absolutes that uphold justice. And yet, ironically, it seems that people are quicker than ever to still point the finger at the God of the Bible and say, hey, he is not just unjust, but he's immoral, and particularly in his treatment of vulnerable people such as women. And if we're honest with ourselves... I guess it's not hard to see why people might feel that way. I mean, who hasn't read through the Old Testament and at some point been really shocked by something that they have read? Because as an ancient historical record that intentionally describes both the highs and the extreme lows of human behavior, the Bible doesn't shy away from telling stories that are genuinely distressing, stories that include rape, polygamy, incest, female oppression, and violence against women. Yet rather than being surprised by this, I think the question that we need to ask is, why? You know, as a teenager, I remember watching a PG-13 movie with my sister when, to my absolute horror, my, my very conservative grandfather walked into the room at the one scene in the movie where you really don't want your grandfather walking in. You know, and he immediately leaping to all sorts of conclusions, he, he turned to us with just a tone full of judgment. He said, don't you girls have anything better to watch? And then he immediately turned around and walked out of the room, at which point I just started praying for Jesus to come back then because I could never look him in the eye ever again. You know, how often do we treat the Bible the same way that my grandfather treated that situation? We walk into a scene that makes us uncomfortable. We assume the absolute worst, so we swiftly condemn it, and then we run away without ever pausing to give the benefit of the doubt or taking the time to try and understand what is going on, what we're reading, what's happening. When we step into the Old Testament, we're actually stepping into a wildly different world. So sometimes we need to work hard to understand the history, the culture, the purpose of the text that we're reading. But you know, when we do, they actually begin to make so much more sense. 
consider just a couple of, of more troubling passages with me this morning, the kind that you flinch at when you read through the Bible. The first is a legal example taken from a law code in Deuteronomy 21, which outlines the treatment of female prisoners of war. The passage says this, If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you're attracted to her, you may take her as your wife after she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month. Then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. At first glance, it's easy to see why this text makes for uncomfortable reading. But what is it actually saying? Well, firstly, that even in an extremely violent and bloody period of world history, the Bible provides explicit instructions to preserve and protect the lives of vulnerable women in the most volatile of situations. And secondly, that unlike in surrounding cultures where women were just considered the spoils of war, rape is banned in ancient Israel. It actually carried a death sentence. Instead, if a man desires a woman, he has to wait a full month after the battle, both to ensure that he's not driven by short-term lust, but also to allow the woman time to grieve her old life. And after a period of time, the man may then take her as his partner, but only if he commits to marrying her. And in this way, the woman is welcomed into the Israelite community as a full family member rather than as a second-class citizen. And finally, if he doesn't wish for the marriage, then he cannot sell her on as if she were property. Instead, he must sell have free. In 2014, I was horrified to read in the news about a pamphlet that Islamic State had released to give their soldiers some instructions for how to treat female prisoners of war. Now, the irony was that the Islamic State leaders had actually released this pamphlet to try and restrain the way that their soldiers were treating the Christian and Yazidi women that they had taken captive. And yet, amongst other things, the pamphlet states that it is permissible for the soldiers to have sexual intercourse with a female captive immediately upon capture capture, that she need not be taken as a wife, but only as a sexual slave, that it is permissible to sell her on or give her as a gift if the man doesn't want her, and most horrifyingly of all, that intercourse is permitted even if she's not yet reached puberty. It was as I sat there crying over that pamphlet that I was struck by how unbelievably compassionate the instructions of Deuteronomy 21 actually are, the two perspectives couldn't be more different. Deuteronomy was written here to safeguard the most vulnerable, the very women typically taken advantage of and dehumanized during wartime. Consider another example, this time not a law code, but a historical account from the book of Judges, chapters 19 to 20, which feminist commentators have labeled a text of terror. Now, this is a horrifying tale of an Israelite man from the tribe of Levi, who in an attempt to save his own skin from a mob of violent men who've surrounded the house where he's staying, he throws his concubine out of the door where she is then raped all night and left for dead. And then in the morning, the Levite gets up, he finds her dead on the doorstep, and in this further act of desecration, he dismembers her body, he sends the pieces out to the other tribes of Israel, calling upon them to take vengeance, and it results in a bloody battle. There are so many problems with what happens in this passage, not only in the crime itself, but in the reaction of God's people, whose response falls so far short of enacting justice for the murdered woman that they don't even call the Levite to justice and to account for his callous treatment of her. And yet rather than running away from this horror story, 
when we actually ask the question why this is included in the Bible, I actually think it's immediately clear that far from this being about glorifying what has taken place, this account is written as a fierce indictment against a people who have turned away from God and who the book of Judges keeps telling us are only now doing what is right in their own eyes. People doing what is right in their own eyes. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Which is why when people say to me, Joe, how could this story be in the Bible? My response is actually, how could it not be? Because particularly in light of the Me Too movement, I can't think of a more important Old Testament text for women today than this one. At a time when victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence feel not only unheard, but unseen, the public record of this account in the Bible stands as an undeniable statement that even though her rapists don't see this woman for who she is, even though the Levite doesn't see her, and even though in their reactionary knee-jerk response, God's own people fail to see her, God will not allow this woman to go unseen. Instead, he puts her story front and center by immortalizing this narrative in Scripture. God ensures that it will be witnessed down the centuries such that even thousands of years later, we are still here talking about it this morning. And in doing so, God not only confronts us with the horrendous reality of what happens when a culture just does what is right in their own eyes, but he demands that in our remembering, we do not go and do likewise. Contrary to the accusations of the Me Too movement, this is not a religious cover-up here. Rather, this text serves as a stark reminder why we need an all-seeing God to enact justice. In the words of Hagar, another concubine who was taken advantage of by her master and abused by her mistress, and who at the very lowest point of her life, when she's lost all hope, is rescued by God, this is what Hagar has to say. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. And she said, I've now seen the one who sees me. And what I love about the Bible is that God not only recognizes women as victims of injustice, but he also empowers women to enact justice on his behalf. Take the prophet Deborah, for example, in that same book of Judges. And how remarkable that over 3,000 years before the first female justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, was appointed to the Supreme U- U.S. Supreme Court in 1981, Deborah was appointed to be the judge of all Israel. And scripture records that she was one of the few who not only led Israel into military victory, but through 40 years of peace. In a world that has all too often overlooked women, the God of the Old Testament sees things differently. He sees women not as disposable, but as indispensable. Far from painting them as beautiful little fools, the Bible celebrates women who have the courage to act to save the lives of others at risk of their own. Women who are praised for their entrepreneurial spirit and their financial savvy. Women who take initiative to establish justice where it has been overlooked. Women who are praised for their wisdom, even when their husbands look like fools. And women who have the spiritual authority to challenge kings and to speak on behalf of God. And the same high regard carries over from the Old into the New Testament as it happens. By the first century AD, attitudes towards women in Jewish culture had actually become more rather than less oppressive. So much so that the first century Jewish historian Josephus noted that the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Now this is the world that Jesus grew up in. And yet, 
This comparison only makes his own attitude towards women all the more striking. I have a goddaughter called Mia. And when Mia was three years old and in the middle of her Disney princess phase, she went up to her dad one day and she said, Daddy, did you know that mommy is a queen and I'm a princess? To which her dad responded, oh, does that make me king then? And Mia just replied, don't be silly, Daddy. Jesus is king. You're just a boy. (laughs) And I was so proud of her. Only three years old, and she not only has excellent theology, but she's skilled at deflating her dad's ego in three seconds flat. One of the things I love about the New Testament is this, that Jesus never tells me I'm just a girl. Far from it. For example, by Jesus' day, there was a commonly held belief that women succumb to sexual temptation far more easily than men, and therefore, to catch sight of a beautiful woman was to find yourself in grave danger. As one Jewish law code states, it's more dangerous to walk behind a woman than it is to walk behind a lion. Now, in that culture, if a man was sexually immoral with a woman, then it wasn't the man who was blamed for crossing the line. It was the woman on account of her powers of seduction for leading him astray. Have you ever wondered why there's a stoning in the book of John and only the woman is present for being stoned for adultery and there's, there's no man present? That would be why. You know how tragic to think that 2,000 years have passed and yet we're still tangled up in those same blame games today. And yet it was into this context that Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount in which he completely turns these cultural assumptions on their head by saying, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here Jesus is teaching the exact opposite of what his culture taught by challenging his hearers to recognize that lust originates from within their own hearts and to take responsibility for it. He calls them to a higher standard of seeing women, not as sexual objects, but as human beings made in the image of God. Jesus also lived at a time when the education of women was so strongly discouraged that Jewish law stated if any man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it's as though he taught her lechery. And yet when Martha summoned her sister Mary away from where Jesus was teaching in their home and back into the kitchen, Jesus actually prevents Mary from leaving. Instead, he says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. She's even described as sitting at Jesus' feet, which is the revered position for an honored disciple in that culture. And as we're approaching Christmas, just pause with me for a second and consider how absolutely astonishing it is that God himself, the one who flung stars into space, the one who has no beginning and no end, not only took on human flesh, but he had a mother so revered was Mary for her relationship with Jesus that the early church called her Theotokos, literally means the God-bearer, the God-carrier, the one who carried the divine son within her own body, the one who nurtured and protected Jesus when he was too helpless to look after himself. What act could more greatly signify the tremendous esteem with which God views women than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born to a woman? Time and again throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus going up against culturally oppressive attitudes towards women and totally overturning them, even to the point that the holy people, the religious types, take offense at him, like the Pharisees who invite Jesus to a dinner party and then judge him for allowing a woman who is known about town as a sinner 
to gatecrash the dinner party where he is guest of honor. And she throws herself at his feet. She starts weeping everywhere. She starts drying his feet with her hair. And then she starts kissing them. And they're all judging Jesus and thinking, how can you be a holy man if you're letting a woman like this touch you? And then into that shocked, judgmental silence, Jesus speaks these provocative words. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Do you see her not as sin, not as scandal, not as a scapegoat for your lust? Do you have the eyes to look beyond the labels that have been put on her and to simply see her? I believe that's the question that God is asking us this morning as well, whether it's you know, the women we've been watching online, viewing them as sex objects rather than image bearers, whether it's women in our lives who we treated callously or failed to honor. You know, there are some of us here today who know that actually there are, there are certain things in our lives, certain ways we've been treating women that God actually wants to change. You know, whenever we who carry the name Christian don't value others like we should, we're actually complicit in causing them to not only believe lives, lies about themselves and their worth, but also to believe lies about God, because we make them think that Jesus Christ must not value them very much either. A question from Jesus to ponder this morning, do we see others, do we see women like Jesus really sees them? And how deeply Jesus' question here mirrors the cry of those protesters on International Women's Day at Berkeley, the cry to be seen, the cry to be understood. And yet while I truly felt for those protesters, I also couldn't help but feel a kind of sadness, a sadness because at the end of the day, all it took was one look at Rachel beneath that paper bag to realize that whatever efforts we make as human beings, whatever progress we make, it's never going to be enough. It's never enough because our problems are so much bigger and deeper than any legal or political or social remedy that we can come up with could fix because our problems run deeper than that. They run all the way down to the problem that Jesus himself identified in the Sermon on the Mount, the problem with the human hearts. In the words of the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent eight years in a Soviet labor camp in the 1940s, so he had a pretty good picture of human nature. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil, it cuts through the heart of every human person. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? The hard reality is that human justice will always fall short because no man-made system can legislate the heart. But what an inexpressible relief it is then that even though human justice will fail us, Jesus Christ was unwavering in his commitment to the cause of divine justice. And that is exactly what his death on the cross symbolizes to us, the cross being the strongest and most overt statement God could ever have made that actually we're not okay. That our lives have disagreed so badly with the life that God intended for us to live that actually the only appropriate way to deal with it, the only fitting judgment for the ways that we you know, debase and devalue and dehumanize and, and destroy one another is death. And I know that to those of us who've never been the victims of gross injustice, that judgment seems harsh. That seems severe. But to Rachel standing with that paper bag over her head, proclaiming that all five of her rapists are getting away with it, God's commitment to justice, a commitment that we see running all the way from the Old to the New Testament and culminating at the cross is a hope for her to hold on to, the hope that no matter how badly wrong she has been, that the God 
of all the earth will do what is right, that he will ensure that justice is served. Likewise, there will be many of you here this morning who have been treated really badly. And that matters to God. That truly, deeply matters to him. That matters so much that moving on to our third and final reason, ultimately the good news of the Bible for all of us, men and women alike, is this, that no matter how defaced or dehumanized you have been made to feel or you've made others feel, no matter what kind of bag or mask you might wear, the God of the Bible is a God who sees right to the heart of every single one of us. A God who looked on Rachel at Berkeley with such love in her harassed and helpless state that in the person of Jesus, he willingly chose to come and live a human life, to enter beneath that paper bag and to wear it from the inside looking out, to be stripped naked and exposed like her, to undergo public ridicule and humiliation like her, to know what it's like to wear nothing but shame, to have men hide their faces, and to endure unimaginable isolation and violence and suffering, all because he couldn't bear to stay up on some far-off heavenly throne while Rachel was down here suffering, but instead he came to be with her, to suffer for her, even to die for her, to free her from the sin of everything that she herself has ever done and the shame of everything that has ever been done to her. And that day at Berkeley, as soon as she laid eyes on her, my colleague, Madeline Jackson, she just had the overwhelming impression of the Holy Spirit saying to her that day, you know, out of everybody here on this campus today, I identify with her. I'm here for her. And so Madeline approached Rachel, and she began to share with her some of the things that I've been sharing with you this morning. And as she did, as she spoke about God's valuing and God's love, and that God sees and God cares about justice. Rachel just began to weep and weep and weep. And then she threw her arms around Madeline and they just stood there holding each other so tightly with everyone else walking by and thinking like, what on earth is going on? And then Madeline asked if she could pray for her and, and Rachel said yes. And so they stood there holding hands in the middle of that, that public thoroughfare. You know, that was the moment when Rachel discovered for the first time, when she was introduced for the first time to the living God of the Bible, a God who sees every single person as valuable, a God who is committed to justice for the victim and judgment for the oppressor, and a God who loves one of us so much that he would do whatever it takes to free us and to be in relationship with us. A colleague of mine recently offered me this sage piece of advice. He said, life is hard, God is good, don't confuse the two. You know, I think there are maybe some here this morning who are actually having a really hard time believing that, believing that God is good. You know, for some of you, it's, it's about what you find in the pages of Scripture. Perhaps you've come across things that have just really put you off, that have caused you to stumble, to question God's character, and so you've retreated from reading Scripture because honestly, deep down, you're scared. If I go one more page then actually, I don't know what I'm going to find here. There are whole swathes of Scripture. You wouldn't even go near because you're so scared of what you might discover about God and whether it's actually going to cause you to lose your faith. Now, I get that fear. I've been there myself. You know, if that's you this morning, then, then I just believe God is inviting you to stop running away and to face it with him. You know, I tried for quite a while in my life to run away from doubts, but I found that all, all that happened was that the doubts eventually just overtook me. You can't get away from them. 
But actually, when we bring them to God, when we face them with God, we discover a God who isn't um, threatened by our questions. He's not angry that we're asking, (laughs) that we're struggling. In fact, he welcomes our questions because aren't questions just how you get to know anybody? And actually, the deeper you go into a relationship with someone, the more questions you're going to ask about them. And, and the harder the questions will be because you want to know the things about them that are difficult to understand, that other people maybe don't, don't ask because they don't, they're not really interested in knowing you that well. But if we really want to know God, of course, we're going to have questions. And, and he loves that because he wants to know us intimately. Look how far he came to know us. How much does he welcome our questions? I think the question for us this morning is, how much do we care about that relationship? How much is our relationship with God worth to us when those hard challenges come? Are we going to dig deep? Are we going to lean in and press in? Or are we going to just push him away and walk out that door? You know, when those rumors come, are we just going to instinctively believe them? Because that's what everybody's saying. Or actually, are we going to go straight to God himself and say, I want to know what you have to say about yourself. Tell me who you are. I want to get into your word. I want to understand. Help me to understand your, your scriptures, your words. So that the next time those rumors come around, you're in a place where you can honestly say, you know, I know that I don't know everything about God, not by a long shot. But actually, I know my God well enough to not believe that. I know my God better than those rumors. And then maybe for others of you, it's not so much that you're wrestling with the pages of Scripture and what has happened in the past, but you're just wondering whether there is a God who's going to be good to you today, a God who is present in your life. Because honestly, it hasn't felt like he's been there. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just so hurt. You're so hurt. And everyone else is like, yay, Christmas. You're like, oh, I can't bear it. I can't bear another Christmas. I'm so empty. I'm so fed up. I'm so alone. It's so dark for me, Christmas. Maybe you're here with that paper bag over your head and you're just wondering, is there anyone out there who even sees me at all? If that's you this morning, I just want you to know that there is a God who sees you. You are not invisible to him. You're not lost in the crowd this morning. He doesn't just see you. He came down to sit right next to you, to get under that paper bag with you and to walk through everything that you're going through with him, to step into the darkness so that the darkness would be overcome. So if that's where you're at this morning, I'm just take a moment to pray. If you'd like to join me, then please do. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good, that you are a good, good Father. Lord, and I know for some of us here this morning, that is a really hard thing to say, let alone believe. Lord, so for those who are just wrestling with who you are and how you see them today, Lord, I pray, Lord God, that this Christmas time you would break in and that they might have just a revelation of you. Jesus, just as you came in history, you came to rescue us, you came into our world. Would you come in this Christmas and enter into people's hearts that they might understand that you are the God who is for them, the God who truly sees them, Lord, and sees all the mess and the confusion and the hurt. Lord, you're not put off by any of it, but you say, that's what I came for. I came for you. I came to take that on myself so that you could be free, so that you didn't have to live under the shame anymore. You didn't have to live under the hurt of of the damage that has been done to you by careless people, by evil in this world. Lord, you wore that on yourself so that we could be free. And I pray this Christmas time, Lord, that, that people would be set free, that they would know you're the God who sees them. 
that they would have an encounter with the one who sees them. Lord, and as we sing at Christmas, how silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. And no ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Lord, we just invite you to enter in this Christmas. Lord, would you make room in our hearts for you? And would you show us just how much you love us, that you would come for us like that, and you come again, and you come again, and you come again. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. Amen.